So we are in the book of Daniel. I get to do something that I don't get to do very often. I get to preach this morning. Typically, for those of you who know, who've been here, I'm usually standing here leading you in music, but I get the joy of preaching this morning. And so we are in the book of Daniel, chapter three. I haven't started yet. Don't clap yet. You don't know how this is going to go. But uh, go to the, if you'll open up Daniel 3, uh, Daniel 3 in your Bibles, um, the scripture will be on the screen as well. Um, would you stand for the reading of God's word if you are able to? I'm going to read this um, passage for us. It's the entire chapter. I will do my best to keep it as engaging for you as possible. It's a, it's a kind of a, a little bit more uh, longer stretch of scripture. All right. So this is Daniel chapter 3. <clears throat> King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you, they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made. Well and good. But if you do not, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, 
that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king, he answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. The Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins." For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and for this story of these three friends of Daniel. God, would you illuminate our hearts and our minds to receive what you have for us today out of your word? That is, it is the food of life. Um, Would you um, nourish us with it today? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. When I was finishing up my freshman year of high school, Tobey Maguire's first Spider-Man movie came out. I saw this movie, and I loved it. And it led me down a path I never would have expected. No, I did not become a crime-fighting vigilante. I started buying comic books. I found I really liked comics, and for a short time in my teen years, I kept up a run of different comic book series that I still have boxed away at my house to this day, each with their individual plastic sleeve and cardboard insert to make sure that they stay in mint condition. I've taken care of these comic books, and I thought, you know, maybe one day they'll be worth something. I mean, surely the first appearance of the anti-hero Venom in issue number 33 of Ultimate Spider-Man will be worth something someday, right? Fast forward 20 years, I looked up that issue, and it's going for uh, an average of $15 right now. Not bad when I bought it for $2.25. This is from comicbookrealm.com, so take it for what it's worth. One of the interesting things about that website, though, 
is that you can see kind of a list of people who currently own it and what they say the value is and how much they're willing to sell, sell it for. And then likewise, they have a list of people who have said, hey, I'm interested in this comic book. Here's what I'm willing to pay for it. It's probably not a shock to you that the ones selling the comics are asking well more than what any of these folks are willing to pay. In fact, the vast number of interested folks on this list are willing to pay the original sale price of $2.25. Now, I'm not trying to get in the weeds here with buying and selling comics, but what I want to think about is how we value or assess worth of something. What we value is not often what other people value. And in a materialistic, kind of free market society, the thing we value is completely dependent upon how others view it in order for it to have actual value. It doesn't matter what I think about this comic that gives it its value. It's what someone else is willing to pay that does. Now, imagine if this was how we assessed God's value. If God is nothing more than an object, then the value that I place on him is not as important as the value that others place on him. I need others to see him just as valuable as I do, or else my value of him is not accurate. If I view God as simply an object, the value that society places on him will ultimately determine how I feel about him. Now, with the comics, eventually, I'll throw them out or recycle them because while I thought they were valuable, society tells me of their true value. However, the worth or worthiness of God and the worth of comic books are thankfully not the same, nor should they be assessed the same. While the worth of my comics is it's dependent upon what society thinks, the worth of God is completely intrinsic in who he is because God is not confined to his creation. He is not a created thing, but stands above all things. His worth is above all things. He is infinitely worthy. Additionally, he has proven his worth time and again in his character and in his attributes, which we have been thinking about through the series of Daniel. So not only does his value come because of just who he is, it's proven by these characteristics and these traits of who he is. In the first three sermons, we've looked at God's faithfulness in sanctifying and fortifying his people while in exile. That was in chapter one. We then looked at God's wisdom and his uh, greatness in chapter two, that God is our source and provider of wisdom. And not only is he wise, but he's also able to act on his wisdom through his limitless greatness and power. We've also seen continually in this book the juxtaposition between the kingdom of Babylon and the kingdom of heaven the limitations of man, and our unlimited God. And in the text this morning, we find ourselves in a story about the three friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It would be easy to jump to God as deliver, deliverer when you read this chapter. And that's, that's definitely in this text. And will be the theme, uh, a theme that returns in a big way in Daniel 6. But what I want to look at in chapter 3 here is to see what does this story show us about God's worthiness? And I get that worthiness is not a trait. It's not an attribute. It's something more. We talked about that. It's kind of the sum of all these traits and attributes. It also stands kind of outside and above all of them as well. But because God is faithful, wise, powerful, just, 
because he's our creator, our sustainer, because he's the only true God, he is worthy of our worship. And this is not dependent on what he has done or can do for us, but because of who he is. So the question of this text that I ask of this text is if God was not worthy, why would these three friends be ready to give up their lives, right? Which brings me to the main point of this sermon this morning. God's worthiness can give us confidence to live boldly in the midst of any circumstance. I'm going to say that again. God's worthiness can give us confidence to live boldly in the midst of any circumstance. We'll seek to develop this big idea as we walk through this text together. And I've split this sermon into kind of three parts. We see, one, the pressure to forsake God. Two, the price of following God. And three, the presence of our faithful God. The first part part of the story centers on this mounting pressure to forsake God. Let's look at this together. This is, we begin with verse 1 through 7. It sets up the situation for us. The king has decided to play God. He sets up a golden image and demands everyone to worship it. The author of Daniel really, really wants us to see, wants us to see that the image was set up by the king because in the first seven verses here, there are five times or so that some phrase of the king made an image or the image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up, the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up recurs in those first seven verses five times. We need to see, and I think this is what the author is getting at, that we need to see that a man created this image. And it's a man who demands for it to be worshipped. We don't know if this image was one of his gods or of himself or what, but what we do know is that by doing this, the king is basically making himself equal with God. Because, one, he is the one commanding who or what is to be worshipped. He is the one demanding worship to be done in a certain way. He is the one requiring that all people's nations and tongues fall down in worship. He is the one to judge whether people are worshipping rightly or not. And I believe that he's doing this because he is just so certain of his power and his rule. Now, as a reader of this text, one has to ask, did King Nebuchadnezzar just forget about what just happened? So like chapter two, we don't really know how long it's been since chapter two. There's no time indicated. It doesn't seem likely that this happened immediately after the events of Daniel interpreting the king's dream. It could have been soon. It could have been a few years. We don't know. However, we cannot discount the placement of these two stories next to each other in this book. And the connection made between the statue in his dream and the statue that he builds. The end of chapter 2, verses 46 and 47, says this, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. When I read the end of chapter 2, it's as if I'm watching a sitcom, maybe not unlike Arrested Development, where I hear the king saying in the end of the scene, I have learned my lesson. And then Ron Howard saying, he in fact did not learn his lesson. And then cuts to a scene of him building this golden image. That's what I believe the author is trying to get at. 
King Nebuchadnezzar, although perhaps shaken spiritually by circumstances of his dream and Daniel's response, he did not experience genuine repentance or a turning to the God of Israel back in chapter 2. He's still just as arrogant and and self-absorbed as ever, if not worse. This is what happens when there's no true repentance. Someone may give the impression that they have had a profound experience of God and even feel some sense of sorrow over their sin. But if they do not make God the Lord of their life, if they do not submit to his authority, they will be doomed to a cycle of falling back into forgetting the true God. Why? Because they have functionally made themselves the Lord of their life. Now, if verses 1 through 7 gives us the setup for the story, verses 8 through 15 gives us the conflict of the story. Some Chaldeans, jealous of the positions that the three friends possess in the Babylonian government, they find an opportunity to exploit the situation to their advantage. So they notify the king of the uh, the three friends' insubordination. And the king is furious when he hears the news. And I think it's important here to look at the king again for a moment. He's so absorbed in worship of himself that others not following his commands enrages him. Church, power is not found in rage, although we can often feel like it is. What is revealed in rage often is actually fear. Fear that we are, in this instance, not as powerful as we think we are. The king's rage, in my mind, is equivalent to a toddler throwing a tantrum. The king here is just a a big baby. However, even big babies can be dangerous sometimes. All of this, the setting up of the image, the requirement to worship and bow down to it, the penalty if the order is broken, the rage that he feels when his order is ignored, all of this serves to point to the one whom King Nebuchadnezzar finds worthy. It isn't the God of Israel. It isn't any God, truly. Ultimately, it's himself. He is the object of his own worship. And he wants everyone to agree with him that he is powerful and worthy of worship, that his kingdom is above all other kingdoms as he requires all peoples, nations, and tongues to bow down to his statue that he has made. This is the world we live in, is it not? Do we not live in a world that promotes this ideal that you are your own God, that you are the only one to define who you are and what is most true about you, not someone or something outside of you? In his book, You Are Not Your Own, author Alan Noble, he says this, the freedom of sovereign individualism, that's what we're talking about here, sovereign individualism. The freedom of sovereign individualism comes at a great price. Once I am liberated from all social, moral, natural, or religious values, I become responsible for the meaning of my own life. With no God to judge or justify me, I have to be my own judge and redeemer. This burden manifests as a desperate need to justify our lives through identity crafting and expression. Now, is this not what the king is doing here? He's trying to create meaning for his own life. But in his particular situation, he has the power to punish those who disagree with him. Whereas in our world, we can just unfollow them on social media or ghost them 
in real life. But this is the contrast that we see between King Nebuchadnezzar and the three friends. The king saw himself as his own. The friends knew that they were not their own, but belonged to God, which aided them in fighting against this mounting pressure. Can you imagine the pressure that these men must have felt at this moment? The pressure to give in to what would be so easy to do, how easily they could have explained it away. They were high up in the government. They could have thought about what that loss might mean for the people of Israel. They easily could have justified it saying, you know, we're doing it for our people, not for Nebuchadnezzar. Or they could have easily have said, you know, I, I will go through the motions, but in my heart, I'm not really worshiping this image. I'm going to do this in a professional capacity, but this is not personal. This kind of pressure, while maybe not life-threatening for us, is real. Have you felt pressure to minimize or discard your faith in front of non-believers? Have you felt isolated among your peers because maybe you're the only Christian or maybe one of a few Christians in your workplace or research cohort or class? That has got to be terribly difficult. But it's completely understandable to feel this pressure of the culture around us. We are asked to agree with certain beliefs or reject certain beliefs, to think certain things or look a certain way or live in a certain way, and this is either stated explicitly or implicitly. And at the same time, we are told that we are the only ones that can, can and should define meaning and purpose for our lives. But the truth is, we are not our own. We belong wholly to God. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism is this, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I believe this is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego believed about their own relationship with God. God held them in his hands, ultimately, not this tyrant king. And it's easy when society matches up with our own Christian beliefs. But when they push up against each other, that's when it becomes difficult. It becomes even more difficult when you see folks you believe to be faithful Christians compromising on something that goes against our understanding of Scripture. I feel it often, as I'm sure that you do. You may be even finding yourself saying, it would be so much easier if I just gave up on all this Christian stuff and joined everyone else. It's always easier to let the current take you than to fight the current. But currents sometimes lead to waterfalls. And while you may no longer be fighting the current, you find yourself plummeting to your death. And while that may sound dramatic, it is what lies ahead for those who forsake God. So how do we fight this pressure? How do we stand firm when we feel this immense weight of the culture around us? Well, let's look at the next part of this text and see what God is showing us through these three friends, which brings us to our next point, the price of following God. The three friends are faced with a decision to either assimilate and forsake their God and his commandments or to stand firm no matter the outcome. They were being asked to break specifically the first and second of the Ten Commandments, commandments given by God to the people of Israel. And just as a quick reminder, first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, and the second commandment, 
you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Deadly serious. By compromising, they wouldn't simply be bowing to, down to an image, but replacing the one who truly rules their lives with a false substitute. I don't simply mean the golden image, I mean the king himself. Verses 16 through 18 is really the main point of this entire story. Every, everything hinges on this section. How will these men react to the king's test of loyalty? What can we learn from them about standing firm under pressure and the true cost of following God? First, they show us what a strong, mature faith looks like. Look with me in verse 16. They answer him, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now, uh, one, one one of my favorite gifts that I send friends in text messages when I'm shocked about something is that white owl that just turns its head. Have you ever seen that one? That's what I visualize in my head when I read this. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. How bold. We have no need. They aren't being disrespectful, but they are being honest. The one to whom they answer ultimately is not King Nebuchadnezzar, but God. They then go on to explain, if this be so, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Here they acknowledge God's power to save them. While the king thinks he is powerful, the one to whom Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego serve is infinitely more powerful. They then say, But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. But if not, these are probably the three most important words in this whole chapter. But if not. They've acknowledged God's power, but here they acknowledge his wisdom. They also have set themselves apart from everyone else in that God's worthiness to be worshipped is not based on what they can get from him, Rather, it is simply because of who he is. They will obey him regardless of whether it personally benefits them. Pastor theologian uh, Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary, The Message of Daniel, he puts it like this. The real miracle of Daniel 3 has already happened. That there are three men who do not worship in Nebuchadnezzar's totalitarian state is a miracle of God. The miracle of the confessing church. That the three were not devoured by the fire is no greater miracle. Suppose the fiery furnace had consumed them. The real miracle would have happened just the same. Wow. Their response is astonishing and beautiful. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's response to the king gives us a picture of mature faith. Again, I can't put this better than Dale Ralph Davis when he says, These men give us then a full balanced picture of faith. Faith knows the power of God. He is able, in verse 17. 
guards the freedom of God, but if not, in verse 18, and holds the truth of God, we will not serve your gods, in verse 18. Do you hold all these three elements of faith in balance? Maybe you acknowledge the power of God, but only to the extent that it serves your interests. You don't allow for the wisdom and freedom of God to work despite your desires trusting in him regardless of the outcome. That is not a mature faith. Maybe you trust in his power and his wisdom, but you do not submit yourself to the truth of his word, disobeying what he has commanded of you. That is not a mature faith. A full, mature faith holds all three of these in balance. Secondly, they were wise in how they practiced their faith. They didn't scream and yell when the state demanded something of them that went against their beliefs. They quietly and firmly stood their ground. And when confronted with the issue, they didn't shy away, but spoke plainly and boldly. They let their actions speak for them before their words. They lived boldly before speaking boldly. But how often do we do the opposite? It's so easy to speak boldly when you can post outrage about whatever you want for all to see on social media. But do you live boldly before speaking boldly? Third, it's worth noting that they were exiles in a foreign land. They did not expect the majority of folks to follow the way they lived because they were foreigners. We can often forget that we are first citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And because of that, we too are actually foreigners on earth. You may have at some point felt shocked when you, know, you hear of our society doing yet another thing in stark contrast to the God of the Bible. But why are we surprised by that? Our culture is not a Christian one. We, just like the Israelites in Babylon, live as exiles in a foreign land. We can't expect our practices and beliefs to be what the culture around us just naturally follows. Now, you may look at this story and you may think, this is a story to give people something to aspire to. That's not really applicable to this day and age. Do not forget about all the men and women who have been martyred across this planet because of their worship of Jesus Christ. Don't forget about people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Lutheran pastor compelled by his faith in God to serve in the German resistance of World War II, captured and executed by Nazis. Don't forget about 21 Egyptian Coptic Christians in 2015, murdered by Islamic extremists in Libya because of their faith in Jesus. The group Global Christian Relief is an organization that exists to connect churches with, uh, basically to support and resource the persecuted church across the world. In their studies, they figure that about 360 million Christians, 360 million last year lived in countries where persecution was significant. Roughly 5,600 Christians were murdered, more than 6,000 were detained or imprisoned, and another 4,000 plus were kidnapped. In addition, more than 5,000 churches and other religious facilities were destroyed, all within the last year. If you profess to be a follower of Jesus, that your faith is in him for your salvation, these are your brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters who are standing boldly before the threat of imprisonment 
and death because of their obedience to the one true God. Daniel chapter 3 is not simply some virtue tale highlighting the faith of three men, but a reality for a large number of Jesus' followers across the world. Simply because we live in a country where this level of persecution doesn't currently exist does not mean that it does not happen. And we need to wake up to the truth that this story is not just a story, but a reality for 360 million people. And what? We're afraid to talk to somebody about Jesus because of what we are afraid they'll think of us? Is our faith so fragile? We need to repent. We need to repent corporately and individually for how we have forsaken our God under the pressure of an increasingly antagonistic culture. I need to repent. I need to repent of leading you in worship every Sunday, seeking to magnify the worth of God. And yet I feel awkward at times to talk to people about Jesus. We all must repent. So why, why would Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and 360 million people across the world right now put themselves into harm's way like this? Because God is worth it. He is worthy of all of it. But do you believe that? Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Psalm 18.3, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Psalm 96, 3 and 4, which Ryan opened our, uh, with our call to worship, Psalm 96. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. So we've seen the pressure that Babylon brought upon these men to forsake their God. We've seen the cost of their discipleship. But we haven't finished the story yet. What does God decide to do? He decides to show his power by saving these men. And it brings us to our final reflection, the presence of our faithful God. Verses 19 through 30 shows us what happens. I've labeled Nebuchadnezzar the toddler king in his rage, has the furnace heated to beyond normal standards, disregards the life of his own soldiers who die because of it, just to spite the three friends, and then throws the men in the furnace with all their clothes on. But what happens? Verses 24 and 25 tells us of the king's response and what he saw. He says, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now the first observation here. God could have just snuffed out the fire, right? Like, that would have saved them. But that's not what he did. I believe God wanted to use this story as an example. That this fourth man that comes is both with the men in the fire and also protecting them from the fire. Now, some would say that this fourth man, this angel of God, as Nebuchadnezzar describes him later on, that this fourth man is to be a pre-incarnate Jesus. But there's not really enough information to say that definitively. But what we can say for sure is that it's God's presence with them. There is a divine presence with these men. And on this side of the cross, 
we actually, we can know that this is a type of Jesus. Jesus who entered into our world, into the fire, so to speak, and has saved us from it. And I think this passage can be a comfort, a comfort to us Christ followers. While we see a dramatic deliverance here, we know that it's not always how God does it. He often doesn't remove us from the pain, the persecution, the dangers of this life as followers of Jesus. But you can be sure that he will be with you in it and he will be walking with you through it. And ultimately, because of Jesus' work on the cross, that even in death, God will see you safely to heaven and you will be in his presence forevermore. If God is with us and death cannot touch us, then what fear should we have? Isaiah 43, 2 and 3 reminds us, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Look, God is with you every step of the way. He is with you when you are feeling the pressure to compromise your faith. He is with you when you stand firm. And he is with you when you fail and when you run to him for guilt, with guilt and shame. His forgiveness in Jesus Christ covers us when we fail in these ways. He loves you. You can trust him. I would encourage you to lean on him for that strength that you need. The truth of the matter is this. You are not your own, but you belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Believe that today and trust in him when the pressure to forsake him seems too much to bear. Remember that God is worth it. Amen.